0: Hi, everyone. My name is Erica Carbajal. I'm a healthcare editor and reporter at Becker's Healthcare. Thanks so much for listening to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast Series today as we discuss reskilling. So we're thrilled to be joined today by Jeff Richards, CEO and co-founder of SnapNurse, and Elena Hall, Chief Quality Officer at SnapNurse. Jeff and Elena, thanks for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me here.
0: right, well, let's go ahead and get get started here. Jeff, can you describe, tell us what what is reskilling and why is it different from other staffing solutions that are currently available?
2: Yeah, thanks, Erica. The reskilling is, um, it's not a new concept. Uh, When I was uh, the chief anesthetist and department director at Grady Hospital, we had our own reskilling program to generate more OR circulating nurses. So it's not unfamiliar. What is new is that a staffing company is providing it as a solution, and and at Snap Nurse, we're super excited to be able to do this, deliver this for our clients, and, you know, both myself and Elena are clinicians at heart. That's where we started at the bedside and thrilled to, you know, be at the the leading edge of innovation and a staffing solution that is desperately needed, and that is the method by which to meaningfully—we can't— Creating more nurses involves nursing schools, large budgets, and you know multiple state and federal uh, support mechanisms to make that happen, and those things are happening. But the fastest pathway to increasing the pool of skilled nurses is through reskilling programs. And what's unique about what we've done is hospitals are devastated right now between staff burnouts, uh, early retirements, those who've quit the workforce, especially at the bedside, the education departments in hospitals are one of the first departments to really get hit hard. Where many of those educators got pulled in back into the bedside because there weren't enough nurses throughout the pandemic, and now in this post-pandemic environment, those departments are still reeling and are not fully staffed or, or struggle with, you know, taking a cohort of nurses who might want to get reskilled and in the operating room like we did at Grady or perhaps in step down units or in an ICU unit or in in the ED. So what we've done is combined the preceptor with a pool of nurses, a cohort of nurses that match the, the needs of the facility so that if the facility wants to add 20 local ICU nurses or ED nurses, we would work with them sending out a preceptor and, of course, the didactic aspect of rescaling combined with that hands-on, in-person um, work inside of the hospital to ensure that the nurses go through the curriculum, have that matched with the clinical care, and have a preceptor. So if, which is what we're finding, most hospitals, one, they don't have the bandwidth to carry out a program like this, it's a, it's a burden on the hospital and essentially can outsource it, including you know the educational materials and also having that clinical preceptor as part of it, where of course they wanna have 20 additional ICU nurses. And in the introductory period, yes, they're doing it through with us in a, in a capacity where they're partnered with a staffing company, but the end goal is that those nurses who are sourced locally then are hired on by the hospital, that there's a meaningful change That they have right at their facility, and that's the heart of what the program offers.
0: Sure. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for highlighting that. I think it just really speaks to how it's a a quick way to to get these these nurses um, versus, you know, you mentioned the partnerships that are happening with schools and the large budgets, but those things, of course, will take a few years before we start to see uh, the effects in the hospital. And can you also talk about what the financial impact is of having an effective reskilling residency program?
2: Yeah, that's, uh, this is what's really exciting. There was, um, in 2021, the NSI, the National Healthcare Retention and RN Staffing Report, put some hard numbers around this. Um, and of course, that was still in the pandemic, and we're now in this post-pandemic where there's still travel nursing all over the country. Um, but for every 20 travel nurses that can be replaced with a full-time staff nurse. It saves the hospital approximately $3 million a year. But that's a huge number. So even this pool that we mentioned, you know, if you – there's going to be an introductory period in that year where the, the candidates go through the reskilling. Um, it's at a reduced rate. It would be a rate reduced from the, you know, higher specialty rate that that they're going to be training into because you wouldn't – they wouldn't be charged at the rate – that of the skilled specialty of which they're being trained in. So there's at least a reduced rate to begin with for that first year. But then if they hire in a cohort of 20 and those nurses are then converted into full time, which is the goal of the program, that's uh, what the program does is to effectively go through that year, then that hospital would save. And t- there have been two different studies. One sided 4 million, the other was 3 million. And, th- and that's, of course, predicated on a bill rate. Um, but it is a significant cost-saving. So those numbers have a huge impact on you know whether a hospital can justify doing this. Yes, there's a short-term uh, cost, but all hospitals are facing almost catastrophic costs from the increase in the number of travel nurses that are in the facilities. And this is a meaningful, tangible way to you know, get to the bottom line, saving three, three to $4 million for every 20 travel nurses that can be turned into full-time staff nurses.
0: Sure. So, some really criti- critical cost savings there. Now, Alina, can you talk about what type of healthcare organizations and geographical locations would benefit the most from these types of reskilling programs?
1: Yeah, I can. So, to be honest, any facility will benefit from it i mean i don't think there's a facility that i'm aware of that's not struggling with staffing but there is a specific um portion that really was hit even harder than those in those urban areas i'm speaking specifically around those community hospitals those critical access hospitals they're in the suburban rural areas that aren't necessarily uh destination locations for travelers Um, a lot of the younger folks are moving out um, to the population centers um, and so they, it's really a struggle for them to attract and retain full-time staff, let alone trying to identify contingent staff through a staffing company. So by working with a facility a, with a temp-to-perm solution like this, we're actually identifying those clinicians in that area and really helping them create a, a, a talent pool of people who want to work full-time, which is where there's an even bigger struggle. Even for staffing agencies, there are struggles trying to even identify Travelers and per diem clinicians who want to work in those suburban, rural areas in r- remote parts of the country, um, anywhere that's probably fifty to seventy-five miles out from a population center, are, are hit even harder than the traditional urban um, level one trauma center that's in a larger just area. So I would say definitely those would be the targets in going to um, you know small town America, where it's just a struggle and they're really hurting direly for staff.
0: For sure. And Alina, uh, Jeff touched on this a bit, but can you touch on how long a nurse is in the program and where you where you find them?
1: Yeah, so the program is a year long, but within that year, 13 weeks of it is specific specialty training. I'm using evidence-based practice didactic materials um, through the, the subject matter experts. So we're using preceptors who are certified nurse educators in those specialties to be at the elbow. They're not just someone who's going to be just kind of peeking in on them. They will be on that unit with those nurses for those 13 weeks as they train. And I like to kind of explain it um, from from even a personal perspective for those of you who aren't necessarily in healthcare. Um, And Jeff, I don't think I told you this. So it it reminds me of my experience as a um, starting to learn how to ride a motorcycle my first couple of days. And so I'm there on the uh, out there with the instructor this instructor who really knows what they're talking about for two or three days on the motorcycle trying to really understand. um, You know how it works feeling confident on the bike and then the third day, once it's over and they give me a motorcycle to ride by myself. I didn't do it. I just got my car and went home because that's what I was familiar with, and that's what frequently happens with these clinicians. They get put out there with a resource nurse, um, really not anyone who's that clinical expert, and many times they don't succeed because they don't have that 12, 13 weeks preceptorship that need, they need to have to build that confidence to be able to work through that specialty. And by being there at that site for that full year, they're not only learning the specialty, but they're learning the culture. They're, they're learning how to work within that community. They're, they've become vested in that facility, and they want to remain. And it goes both ways. Now the facility gets to see if they're a good fit, You know, if there are any HR issues, if there are things that they would have to work through that if they own that particular clinician, they hire them full-time from the beginning, those are things they would have to own and work with. Early on, So the solution really does have a mutual benefit to the clinician and to the facility, and that year is a time for um, intense didactic training, but then a year to really work through and and build that uh, relationship with the facility and the clinician. So that was
2: great to hear. I'm not sure how comfortable I am that I now know that that Elena is riding motorcycles, but that's a great (laughs) reference. (laughs) That was a surprise, but understood the reference. Thank you. (laughs)
0: Elena, thanks for (laughs) highlighting what what sounds like a unique aspect of the program in terms of having those preceptors on the unit with the nurses for for those 13 weeks. Can you also discuss the importance of of having experienced nurses, you know, who who are at least two years into their career in a reskilling residency program?
1: Yeah, so this is something that people don't really talk about a lot. Everyone talks about new nurse residencies, how to get more new nurses in the hospital, but there's a hidden population of nurses that really has it has kind of fell out of the out of the um, limelight. So when you have those nurses who um, have maybe applied for nurse residency programs, they can't get in because the programs are usually cut to maybe 10, 20 clinicians, and there may be 200-plus nurses who want to apply, those nurses have to go somewhere. They usually go to home health. They may go to SNFs, they may go to long-term care ambulatory, places outside of those acute care areas. So you have these nurses who have two plus years experience of patient care, dealing with complex situations, dealing with complex family situations, and now you're bringing them back to the bedside, back to those specialties with those skills, those hard skills that they needed to learn that takes them away from being a new grant, but they're bringing, bringing a value add to that facility. So when, you, when they arrive to the facility, they're, de- they're used to dealing with complex patient-family relationships. They're used to giving medications, documenting, meeting quality metrics. So you're bringing people in, although they may not have that specialty training, that you're bringing them in with a knowledge of, of basic nursing care that immediately adds value to that department on day one. Um, and so one that's one key component that I don't believe facilities are able to really wrap their arms around because they are so um, focused on that new grant or trying to retain their current staff that there is that group of nurses who are asking, you know, pleading, how do we get in? But there isn't necessarily a pathway for people who are two-plus years experience into that facility to learn that training. So that's why that two-plus-year experienced nurse it's a win-win for them because they may be in the community and they've been trying to figure out a pathway to get in. And this provides a pathway for those local clinicians to get into their favorite hospital they've always dreamed of working in. And then they're bringing on, bringing their skills and knowledge of being an experienced nurse with them. So just like during COVID, how they were pulling nurses from ambulatory from um, uh, various other specialties outside of the ICU to support you're bringing these clinicians in with that knowledge and actually creating more of a team approach and adding additional bandwidth for those clinicians who are already burnout, out, who are already struggling, um, immediate support on day one. And then they're learning the, the culture and all of the um, specialty that's needed for that particular facility, whether it's ORE, maternal child health, any of those um, that we'll be focusing on.
0: Sure. It sounds like the fundamentals are, are such a key focus here. And Jeff, to close us out, Can you talk about why healthcare organizations historically have had barriers to sustainable access?
2: So you're talking about with regards to reskilling, being able to sustain a program? like Yes, exactly. So I'd mentioned it in the beginning of this podcast that when I was the director of anesthesia at Grady Hospital, Grady had its own uh, reskilling program for circulating nurses. And what ended up happening, they would take a cohort, same thing, you know, that, that we're proposing here of 10 nurses, but the clinical instructors were also uh, operating room nurses who, and this was 2016, 2017, when I was witnessing this, you know, right before I went back to MBA school and then ended up founding Snapverse with my partner, Shri Kloss, is that the clinical instructors were, because there would be call-outs, you know, the, the typical scenario because there was some kind of call out, they got pulled into the operating room because they had to staff rooms, and then it ended up delaying, significantly delaying, the cohort from being able to finish, um, constant interruptions in the educational cycle, where, you know, to um, Elena's earlier point, you wanna have a quick succession, right, where you're doing didactic learning and then experiencing the the clinical environment and have that well-coordinated, and continuous throughout. Of course, there could be a day two here or there throughout that first 13-week cycle, but that's not what I witnessed, is that then clinical instructors were constantly pulled into the operating room. And I think what we're suggesting is, we're already aware that that was happening and could happen pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, you can be sure that that's gonna happen constantly, or they just don't have the bandwidth to do it, period, now. It's not possible. So by providing that clinical preceptor as part of the team, and depending on the cohort, you know, there's the ratio there, a proportionality of uh, preceptors to the number of candidates in the cohort, then there could be multiple preceptors, you know, if the class is big enough, which would give that added layer of, you know, support and structure so that the the educational pathway is gonna stick to the timeline that we're suggesting. And then after that first 13-week period, when the nurse graduates, the value that they're going to provide the facility is going to last for the remainder of the weeks of the year. And, you know, they've now got a newly minted, especially skilled nurse and got through the program on a, uh, on time, which is really the goal. That's that's a huge a- aspect of the value add that we're offering is to ensure that they have that clinical instructor. There won't be delays. It won't get pulled into clinical settings because they're literally only tasked with that. So. Those are some of the, the things we've seen in the past, and that's why we've created crafted a solution that addresses all of those in advance to ensure that it is set up for success.
1: And, Jeff, can I add to that a little bit? Um, so I know you talked about the preceptors, but I want to kind of go back to my parable even about the motorcycle. So you go back to what's comfortable. And so when you use sometimes the staff that are internal to the facility to try to reskill or upskill, What happens also with those clinicians is if they're coming from floors that are already um, strapped with staffing, they get pulled back out of the specialty training back to those floors. Or they are so uncomfortable because they don't have that full support of a preceptor, they revert back to what they're comfortable with. So if it's an ER nurse that wants to be in ICU but they don't have the support or they feel like they're not comfortable or going to be safe on their own, they go back to where they, they started, where the comfort level is. And so what this does is it bridges the gap. And a lot of times with a facility, they don't necessarily have someone to help bridge that gap to take them to the finish line. And it kind of goes back to that transition theory of people go back to what's comfortable. So how do you address that? And that's by putting a program in place um, as, with a partner with a partner to help make sure you stay on track that's focused on that.
0: Well, Jeff and Elena, thanks so much for your time and insight today. And thanks to our podcast sponsor, Snap Nurse. You can go ahead and tune in to other podcasts from Beckers by visiting the podcast page, podcast page on our site at beckershospitalreview.com slash podcast.